Welcome. It is a blessing to find so much interest in the word of the Lord. I was thinking of the song that we're singing. Focus on that. You know, we acknowledge the word of God of vital importance to us as God's people. I did a little bit of research on that statement that Wycliffe made about the plowboy knowing the word of God. And the context is different than what I actually thought it was. I thought it was his vision to make the word of God so that the plowboy will understand the word of God, the common person. Context is actually not about translation, not even about, it's about authority. It was about authority of the word of God versus the Catholic Church. And he's saying the plowboy with the word of God is better than those who are taught by the church that are not on the word of God. And that was it was interesting. It, it's an affirmation that the word of God is the foundation of all. Um, you know, thousands upon thousands of multiplied thousands have died because they translated it, they distributed it, they had it in their possessions, they read it, they obeyed it, and it cost their lives. Now, of course, we don't worship the Word. The Word is not the part of the Trinity. It's God's Word. As, as holy men spoke and they wrote down, it's God's Word that we have. It's our connection to God with the Holy Spirit. I've had a personal Interest in seeing the the um, possible translation uh, to replace the King James version, knowing that as time goes on, it's going to get more and more dated. It's very good, Tim. What you said about God's word never gets old, even though language does. That that was good. At a meeting, maybe five years ago or so, I would have made mention a multi-church meeting about maybe we should do something like that. And the result was, and maybe uh, Josh can answer this question, the answer was, well, the Lord's coming back soon. Let's just go do the Lord's work. (laughs) But we don't know that, do we? (laughs) So I had a personal interest, and I don't have all the pros and cons. I don't have all the answers to the pros and cons that come with a work like this. And maybe Josh doesn't, Joshua doesn't either. I don't know. But we like to hear um, what you are doing, uh, what your vision is, and some of the questions that arise with it. So we're looking forward to that. Um, just a few comments for those who are not aware. The, the restrooms are to the right, the first hall down there. The men's restroom is first. The ladies' restroom down at the end, both to the right. There's a nursery here where there's a little... Um, dividers here and it's a second nursery just before the cloak room at the hall if you need a nursery and our water source is from a thermos jug in the back there with little cups so um, that should cover that so why don't we stand for a word of prayer 
Lord, again, we thank you for your word and what your word has done and what it is doing and what it means to us. Lord, it's more than just words on a piece of paper. It's more than just history and, and uh, old literature, Lord. It is alive and it's quick and it's powerful. And Lord, we, many, many here are testimony to the power of your word. And Lord, as we, as we studied at the topic tonight, I pray you would guide Brother Joshua as he leads out and as he explains what they're doing. I pray you would bless him. And I pray you give us understanding hearts to hear. But most of all, I pray, Lord, when we leave this place, that we will have a better and a more gracious appreciation of your word. I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. And Joshua, I guess I'll let you introduce yourself. I don't think I can do that. Appreciated the thoughts that were shared already tonight. Where would we be without the Word of God? It is certainly the foundation, the direction, the value of everything that we build that has lasting, eternal impact in the world. And that's certainly our focus. And uh, in response to that thought of let's wait because the Lord's coming back, I had to think, what better project to be involved in the Lord's work than the preservation and distribution of his word? Certainly, certainly a high calling. <clears throat> David writes in Psalm 119.89, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven, which chimed in with another thought we had shared tonight. Not changing the word of God, just preserving and translating the word of God. And uh, Jesus said in his high priestly prayer in John 17, 17, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. It's important. It's central. Well, by way of introducing myself, I suppose, I am Joshua Porter. I actually grew up uh, at Rodden Staff in Crockett, Kentucky. And then when I was barely an adult, I will say. I moved to uh, the Pilgrim Church in Pensacola, Florida to teach school. Taught there for a number of years. But now I am serving as chairman of the board at Traditional Text Bible Publishers. And it's kind of a new work. I've only been doing this for a few years, so we're still learning a lot of things. But we felt that it was important and... Uh, Welcome this opportunity to tell you a little about the thoughts we've been thinking and uh, hear your feedback and, and questions as well. <clears throat> we have gathered, as I understand it, to assess the state of the English Bible and to ponder what lies ahead for the Christian church in regards to the English Bible. The translation of scripture has a very long history. Maybe we don't realize how long the history is. Uh, we have early translations of the Old Testament, for instance, from Hebrew into Greek. 
We have it translated almost immediately, the New Testament, into Aramaic. Uh, Not long at all after that, into Latin, then Armenian, Georgian, lots of early translations, because the early Christian church felt a burden that all people would have an opportunity to read and understand the Holy Word of God. And much, much later it came into English. But some of us also tend to have a very uh, recent view of English translation. And there's been a lot more activity than English, in English translation than maybe we think about sometimes. Of course, we have the early work of Wycliffe, 1384, and Tyndale, which if you want to compare the King James Bible to almost any early Bible, I think Tyndale probably had a greater influence in wording than any other English translation. Then we have the Coverdale, the Matthews, the Great Bible, the Geneva. That was popular for a while in certain circles. Uh, The Bishop's Bible. And finally, as we know, the King James Version in 1611. But that series of English translations uh, sort of stopped there. And after about 200 years of vacillating around trying to decide which Bible was really going to win out, the King James Version really became the most popular English translation. It was embraced. But now, about 400 years after that initial translation, uh, we have to ask ourselves a very important question. Is it time for another English Bible translation? A group of people wrestling with that question and with that sort of vision gathered in Pinyon, New York in November of 2017 and decided to start the traditional text Bible publishers. It's a group of eight men from the U.S. and Canada, from a variety of Anabaptist groups, including Old Order Mennonites, Nationwide Fellowship, CMCO, Eastern Pilgrim Conference. And as we wrestled with this question, we recognized that there are at least three specific questions that need to be answered in order to get a proper understanding of this issue. First of all, since the King James Version is well-respected and broadly accepted, is there an argument to be made for simply continuing to use the King James Version as written indefinitely? Second, if we conclude that there are certain aspects about the King James Version that are becoming too archaic to be satisfactory, then why would we not pick up one of the King James Version variants that's so readily available, such as the early Webster Bible, where Noah Webster decided to change the King James into American English from British English, made a few updates there, or perhaps the 21st century King James, or the King James 2000, or the King James Easy Reader, or the New King James, or the Modern English. There's a bunch of them. Why not pick one of those? They're already done. They're already published. And third, if we decide that's not satisfactory, then why not pick one of the many mainstream Bibles that's already out there that so many people are using? Why not use something like the ESV, or the NIV, or the Amplified, or even the New Living Translation? Why not pick one of those? So 
I'm hoping to give you at least a bit of an insight into the answers we have arrived at and the things that we've thought about in relation to those three questions. But first of all, I have a few things I want to clarify. I feel in a way as I sat down to, to, to pull my thoughts together and, and prepare this talk, I feel in a way as if there is so much material to cover and so many things to say that I'm either going to have to speak at a very rapid clip, and I don't want to leave you behind, or I'm going to have to leave something out. And so I've tried to sort of balance that line and try to choose what I think should be a, a, a fair presentation. But I will, I will present with uh, warning you ahead of time that I will not have time to explain everything about some of the things that I say like I wish I could explain I wish I could give you background on my statements and supporting ideas and some illustrations and those things, and I, don't, I won't have time for that. So if something's not clear, uh, maybe we can clarify it later in a question and answer at the end. Uh, secondly, I realize that in almost every aspect, the things that I share, partially because we love our Bible so much, are debated. People debate these things, and there's different opinions on all of them. And I'm going to share my opinion. I'm going to share the conclusions that we've arrived at. And uh, you are welcome to disagree. I will not be offended if you disagree with the things that I share. I'm, I'm happy if you have feedback or balancing statements you want, to, you want to share. So if anything comes to your mind, if you want something clarified or you would like to, to share something on it, uh, jot those things down at the end. We're hoping to have some time for a question and answer, and hopefully we can bring a little clarity to those things. Okay, so let's dive into the first question. Why not simply continue to use the King James? We have it. We're familiar with it. We love it. We've used it. So why not? Well, first of all, it's because languages change. And if you're living in a language, you might not realize how quickly they change because you change with the language. And you just sort of move along and you're not fully aware. But if you jump back and you start comparing things, all of a sudden you begin to see how much things have changed. I have seven examples out of the King James Bible. And there's hundreds of examples I could give you, but seven examples that will help you to see how language changes over time. And I, I, some of these I'm sure we're already familiar with. We, we've got the the one that I think stands out to a lot of people. We have the these and the thous, right? Well, thou used to be singular and you used to be plural, which solved a big problem in the English language, which we don't have solved today. Down south, we say y'all when we mean more than one because we want to clarify the difference between one and more than one. So they had that figured out. They had thou and you, but the problem is that then that shifted toward using thou for people who were of lower status. You would call your children thou, or your servants thou, or your students thou, and you say, why? Well, the you was, the you was plural, and royalty got to use you. Because sort of like the editorial we, <laughs> the kings and queens, they called themselves, they want to be called you. It's like you're bigger than yourself. 
And so it was the, the plural you was used for the high sass. Well, soon it was the nobles, and then it moved on down, and eventually, well, everybody wanted to be called that, of course. So that went out of style completely, and now today when we read it in the Bible, we're not even sure, why, why is that there? Why didn't they just use you? It would be so much clearer. Carriage. I don't know if you've come across this one or not. A couple of times in the New Testament, Acts 21.15 is one of them. You're reading along and you read about a carriage and you're like, oh, there's carriages talked about in the Bible? No, there aren't. Carriage, in, in older English, referred to luggage or baggage. But then what happened? They loaded that baggage or luggage onto a vehicle and eventually, the way languages shift, the vehicle got to be called carriage instead of the baggage. There's a bit of a puzzle in Matthew 1.20 where we have Joseph and Mary being referred to as husband and wife, but they're not married. Well, that's a double puzzle because there's a Greek explanation and an English explanation. But if you look in the Old English, wife had lots of meanings. It could refer to a woman in general, it could refer to a servant, it could refer to a bride, it could refer to a hostess, it could refer to a saleswoman. So that was a great translation of the Greek right there back in 1611. Now if you look it up in your dictionary, there's pretty much just one definition. A married woman. So you don't have that latitude anymore, and so now it's doesn't read quite right. Raise an eyebrow over that one. In uh, Luke 21.19, we have an example in which we have the phrase, by and by. That was an old English phrase that was used to translate just one Greek word. You know what it meant back then? It meant immediately. You know what it means now? After a while. Actually, it's the opposite. It's changed to the opposite. Yeah. Offend is one we struggle a lot with in the translation because there's difficulties both in the Greek and in the English. A lot of people we uh, have read some of our work, they're like, why didn't you just keep offend? I liked it there. But offend in Old English had a variety of meanings. It meant to attack as an act of war, to sin, to break the law. And in Greek, it was even broader, more definitions. But today, typically, when we talk about offending someone, we talk about annoying them or hurting their feelings, which is quite different than it's usually intended. We have the word moat in Luke 6.41. If you're familiar with the passage, you possibly know what it means. But there's a shift there. Moat used to mean... Typically, a tiny piece of straw, which is almost a perfect translation of the Greek, because Greek is in reference to like a little piece of straw or chaff that, that comes up when you're, the farmer's winnowing the, the grain or whatever. Um, and it had a double meaning in Old English, because it was also used in a saying that often referred to fault finding. So it was like the perfect English word for that passage that talks about the beam and the, and the moat. But now, if you look it up, moat generally refers to a speck of dust. So not quite the same. And leaving a little puzzling, because if you've got a speck of dust in your eye, 
Maybe not too bad. Uh, one more. The word honest originally meant attractive, handsome. And then it got to be meaning uh, of high rank, respectable, which had also the idea of praiseworthy and then upright. And then it included an idea of being frank. So in 1611, it had a variety of different meanings, and it was a relatively good fit. So in Romans 12, 17, the King James says, provide things honest in the sight of all men. It's interesting because the Greek word there, kalos, means beautiful in appearance or character. But today, when you look at honest, truthful is generally what we think of. So you're going to read that verse and you're going to just assume he means tell the truth to everybody. Okay. I mean, it's not a completely wrong thing. But basically what he's saying there is that show a upright and beautiful character, which is a little broader, a little broader than that. Secondly, and I don't want to confuse you with a bunch of grammar, but for those of you who are grammarians or who are interested in grammar, in the older English, passive voice was used constantly. The subjunctive mood, which you may not even know what it is, was used a lot. Today, those things are only used in very narrow, specific cases. And so when we read something like, when the even was come, we think, okay. But we would never say that. We would say, when evening had come, for instance. Or, thy sins be forgiven thee. Your sins are forgiven. How about, which was spoken of the Lord? We would say, which the Lord had spoken. So we have different ways that we would say it now, different structures, different, different uh, grammatical forms that we would use. The spelling and punctuation rules have changed. Most of the spellings in your copy of the King James have already been updated to prevent the, the confusion. For instance, S-I-N-N-E-S is now spelled S-I-N-S in your copy of the King James so that you don't get confused because today the spelling is standardized and we spell sins S-I-N-S. Interestingly, they standardize the spellings only so far because your C-O-M-E-T-H is not spelled C-O-M-E-S in your copy of the King James, even though that T-H sound became a lazy S, which ended up becoming a Z, which we just spell S now, C-O-M-E-S, didn't go quite that far. Here's a sort of interesting one, and... Uh, uh, some confusion still exists around it. You may have noticed that the King James uses an before the word humble. Uh, I was reading a letter uh, response that a teacher had written into the Blackboard Bulletin saying that the H in humble should not be pronounced because the King James precedes it with an, and that proves that it shouldn't be pronounced. Well, what she didn't realize is the history of the word. A lot of these words came from the French, the H's were not pronounced. The French are notorious for not pronouncing the letters in their words, both beginnings and ends. Uh, and so originally it was humble. 
and honest and orable and hospital and oast. Yes. But over time, like happens with people, they read it with the H, and after a while they started pronouncing it with the H. So now we no longer write it that way. It's a humble and uh, so many of these other words as well. If you care about things like punctuation, you might have noticed that your King James Bible has a lot more punctuation than your typical English document. Uh, That's because the punctuation rules have changed a lot since that time and become standardized a lot. The use of semicolons and colons has dramatically decreased. We hardly use them today except for in certain specific cases. Uh, We prefer commas. We prefer periods. That's what we're used to. So that changes a few things. And finally, I don't know if you're aware, but the King James Version is a British Bible. I know we're all used to using it over here in the in the U.S., but it's a British Bible, and so they chose British spellings, and they also chose British ways of saying things. For instance, I was talking to somebody about the King James, and they said, well, the King James translators didn't know what they were doing. I know they messed up because they wrote corn, and I guarantee you that passage was not talking about corn. They still use corn to refer to grain in the UK. They never did this American thing where corn refers to those yellow kernels on a cob somewhere. That's called maize. So corn is still correct if you're in Britain, but it's just not the American way of saying it. One of the things that I was surprised to learn a while ago is that in the UK, the... Future tense is typically, well, how shall I say this? They typically say shall unless they mean something specific in a few cases in which they use will. But in America, in the U.S., it's flipped. We almost always say will unless a few specific cases we use shall. Well, if you read down through the King James Bible, it is full of shalls. And some people think, well, that's just religious language, everything in here. God's giving a command. But that's not the point. That's the British way of stating, for instance, the future tense, which typically we would just use will in American English. Ultimately, we have an ever-widening gap between the English of 1611, the British English of 1611, and the American English of today, And it not only makes it difficult for those who are not familiar with the King James English to understand it, but it also frequently causes those who are familiar with it to misinterpret it. And I'm sure that I am way too sensitive to this, but I always keep my ear perked up when someone starts interpreting a passage to say, did they do that right? (laughs) And sometimes they don't, or maybe oftentimes they don't. Um, And oftentimes it's small things. In Matthew 5.16, the King James says, Let your light so shine before men. What do you think? You can hardly avoid reading that passage and not thinking that it's telling us to allow our light to shine. But that's just because the meanings of certain verbs and structures have changed over time. Actually, not to get overly technical, but in Greek, this is a third-person imperative. 
And that means it's not talking to you at all. Well, it is. It's talking about the light. The light is the subject, and the light is the one that's receiving the direction. So if you were to translate this into current English, it would be, your light ought to shine. And the trouble word, if you want to know, is let, because that's, that's changed, and we don't quite use it like that anymore. Another example is uh, Galatians 6.6. 6. Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth. Various ones like this can trip us up just a little bit. Uh, It's likely uh, talking about providing material support to those who preach the gospel and not about lay people and ordained people communicating well. Uh, It's a double problem because this is also a third-person imperative. So if you put this into current English, it would be something like this. But the student of the word ought to share his things with his teacher. We don't want to be misled. Well, some people say, well, I looked it up in Strong's Concordance. That's helpful. Strong's Concordance has a lot of good information for us. But one of the things to keep in mind is Strong's Concordance isn't new either. There's a few times when someone's come to me and said, well, this is what it says in Strong's. For instance, if you look up the Greek word for woman in Strong's, it'll say wife. And they said, see, right there, that word means wife. I said, yeah, it meant wife. What wife meant back when Strong's did that. If you look up on my old British dictionary and show you what it meant back then. But no modern Greek dictionary is going to give you wife there because it's not what it means anymore like that. Um, it's over 130 years old, so there's going to be some archaic uses, and you've got to be aware of that. The second thing that you need to be aware of is that Strong's is a concordance, and it's not a Greek lexicon. Maybe those sound similar to you. The concordance is mainly focused on all the times a word is used, and then he gives a key definition for you as a reference point, but it's not... The goal is not to help you understand the different meanings according to every grammatical usage of the word. If you were to look at a lexicon, it might say, well, in this case, if it's used as a verb, or if in this case, if it's used with this word, this sort of thing, you're not going to find that in Strong's Concordance. So Strong's Concordance may be helpful, but it's not necessarily authoritative at figuring out what everything means. And I could go off on a little rabbit trail here, but Strong's Concordance is also a concordance or a reference guide that uses internal evidence definitions, and that's a whole separate topic, but basically to just put it in a tiny little few words, the idea is that there's a, there was at one time popular in Christian history the idea that the language of the Bible is unique, and it's not a language used by anybody else in any other literature and any other writings, and so it had its own meanings that couldn't be drawn from other, say, Greek documents and so forth, and so they would look at the passage to decide how that word should be defined. And in in some cases, when a passage is disputed, you end up choosing the definition that you believe fits in the passage by the way you interpret the passage, and it becomes a little bit circular. So there's there's a little bit of a challenge there. Finally, as the language we understand becomes further and further removed from the language of our Bibles, we become more and more in danger of drifting into that problem that our ancestors had with the Latin Vulgate way back when. They didn't want to let it go. At one time, Latin was the 
language of the common people, and everybody understood it. And the reason they translated into Latin is so that people could read Latin and understand Latin. But after a while, people didn't speak Latin anymore. And it drifted away, and the common people didn't speak it, and then only the educated people spoke it, and then even they didn't understand it very well. But it was the Bible that they were used to using, and nobody wanted to let it go. So it went from being the Bible in the language of the common people to a Bible that was merely a religious symbol and no longer understood. And the, pre- the priests, who were supposed to then fill that gap, and sometimes I hear that argument in relation to the King James, well, the common people may not understand it because English has moved on, but their ministers can always explain to them what it means, and then they'll know. Well, there's always room for explanation. I understand. I'm not trying to push the point too far. But that's what the, the priests were supposed to do it. But eventually, it just drifted to the point where the priests were just giving the church talking points, and they weren't even accountable to the word because the lay people couldn't ask them, but I'm reading this in the word of God, right? Recently, a reader told us that he thinks we ought to retain the word brethren in our translation of the Bible because if we use brothers, it sounds like it's referring to family instead of to church members, and he wants to maintain the separation. And I thought, well, I can understand that. You get this feel for language and the way we use it and the further and the slow drift. And after a while, you think, yeah, that sounds, sounds. But, of course, if you read in the Bible, you'll find out brethren is not reserved for church. Brethren is used to refer to family. As a matter of fact, in the New Testament, the whole idea of using brethren for church was to show that those who are in the body of Christ should behave toward each other with the same sort of love and affection that should be required of people who are in the same family because we're part of the family of God. We don't want to create then eventually this false separation where if it refers to family, we're going to use brothers. But if it refers to church members, we're going to use brethren. Then we drift into this misinterpretation. Another brother suggested that if we choose a Bible in more current English than the King James Version, that we're going to lose the divine pronouns. And how are we going to manage with that? And I thought about that and I said, okay, I understand Because there's this sense in which you get used to the these and the thous. They're only used in church. You're not using thee and thou in reference to your child or your employee. We don't use them that way anymore, right? They're a special religious language. But the problem is that if you read your Bible, you'll find out that thee and thou are not used exclusively for God. So we end up drifting into these feelings and these ideas that aren't entirely accurate. People often say, well, if you grew up with the King James Version and you're familiar with the archaic language, then you understand it, and it's no problem. It's only the people who didn't grow up with it who can't understand it. But the problem is language changes in subtle ways. I'm not concerned about the word you come across and read it, and you're like, I've never heard of that word before, because you're going to go look it up, and maybe you'll find out what it means, at least if it happens to have the correct definition in your current dictionary. What I'm more concerned about is the words that have changed in meaning, and they look like a normal word, but now they mean something completely different. One literature professor was talking to his students, and they said, oh, we're, we're familiar with the King James. We, we know about Elizabethan English, and, and we're familiar with it. He said, I'm going to give you a challenge. I would like for you to formulate for me one sentence, just one sentence, got to have a number of words in it, but just one sentence in proper Elizabethan English that is not a quote 
from the King James Bible. So none of his students could do it. They thought they were familiar with it, but they didn't know the rules of Elizabethan English. I mean, how many of us know that thee is the objective case of thou, or that thy and thine are possessive forms whose usage is dependent on whether the following noun begins with a vowel or a consonant? Who taught you those rules? Anyway. To wrap up our observations on this first question, why shouldn't we simply continue to use the King James Version? I want to talk a little bit to how the traditional text Bible publishers has chosen to address these issues. We have decided that because of the current linguistic problems with the King James Version, traditional text Bible publishers will produce a new Bible version that substantially updates the King James Version while understanding, appreciating, and replicating, in a sense, its formal style and its literal translational approach. Our hope is that this will make the message clear and current while retaining the much-loved formality and cadence of the King James Version. In many ways, we share the vision of the King James Version translators who wrote in their preface to the 1611 edition, if we who are building upon their foundation that went before us and being helped by their labors endeavor to make that better which they left so good, no man, we are sure, has reason to dislike us. Truly, we never thought from the beginning that we should need to make a new translation, nor even to make a bad translation into a good one, but rather to make a good one better. This has been our endeavor, our goal. In a similar way, our goal at traditional text Bible publishers is not to undermine or disregard the good work, the solid work, the commendable work that has been done in the past, but rather to build on that work in order to preserve Scripture for the next generation. So that leads us to the second question, then. If the King James Version is not really good enough for an indefinite holding on to, then why not just use one of the various King James Version revisions? King James Version variants, such as the Webster Bible, 21st Century King James, King James 2000, King James Easy Reader, and New King James are often proposed as the perfect answer or solution to this problem. But there are several difficulties, and I want to go over them with you. First, while adding notes and changing out archaic words does make the meaning clearer, it also makes other archaic constructions that I've already mentioned, things like the subjunctive mood or the passive voice or certain inverted sentence structures, much more obvious. And what happens then is you have this sort of mix of old and new, and it's difficult to read. It's like reading on a gravel road. There's bumps every time you come across a change. Tellingly, while some of these work well as reference works, you can look at the marginal note or you can see what they chose as that word where you have an archaic reference. Even though they've been out for 20 or 30 years, uh, they haven't gained much following or much usage And this is largely because they are so close to the King James and they don't read as well as the King James that it hardly merits making the leap to a whole new Bible that you're going to use when it's so close to what you're already familiar with and love so much. I'll give you a rather hypothetical, maybe a little bit nonsensical example from Acts 12, 15. The King James... uh, 
talks about the saints were gathered there. Peter was let out of prison. Rhoda answers the door. Peter's knocking, and she comes back and says, Peter's here. Peter's here. Well, the King James says, thou art mad. You could probably surmise somebody could misunderstand that, because today we don't talk that way. But what would happen if you would say, well, I'm going to take one of those words and I'm going to change it out for a more current word. Suppose you would say, you art mad. How helpful would that be? Well, you would know a little more. You would know thou was changed to you. But it doesn't read better, does it? How if you just said, thou are mad? doesn't read much better either. Even if you said, thou art out of thy mind. Now people would understand what you're talking about. But it still doesn't read that well. And when you sit down with one of these and you read them, you just keep asking yourself, there's something about this that just doesn't have the flow or the cadence that I'm looking for in, in reading, reading a Bible. And it basically tells us that, and it's one of the things we've sort of discovered because we, we started with a, a, a more narrow list, and as we started working, we just noticed you make a few changes, it just becomes incredibly obvious of the other changes that need to be made. Uh, as soon as you change it out of you, art can't stay art anymore. It now needs to be R, right? Uh, and, and so many things like that. And that's just one of the reasons why the ones that are super close are just very difficult to use as a, as a standard main Bible text. But you might take exception with that. For instance, the New King James Version, published in 1983. It's kind of a partial exception to this whole thing. Rather than trying to just go through and pick out a short list of words and say, well, we'll change these words, they did an entire new update. They did an entire new translation of the Bible. And they, they sought to mirror the formality and structure of the King James and many conservative Christians who were looking for a King James Version update, they said, well, go to the new King James. Well, there's a couple of problems with the new King James. First of all, personally, I think, and I know there are people who disagree with me, which is perfectly fine. If I read the King, new King James aloud, I still don't think it has the same flow as the King James does. I still feel like I run into a word every now and then. It feels a little bit a little bit of a, of a surprise or not quite as, a little bit more jarring. But there are more fundamental problems with the New King James. Many of us, I think, would have been fine to settle for the New King James, except for some of these issues. First of all, even though the New King James, or since the New King James was translated in relatively modern times, it was very difficult for those scholars, even though they said, we're going to use the same traditional Greek text that was used for the King James so that those people who like the King James can easily shift to the new King James. But they just had such a hard time with that because they had newer Greek texts that were more popular and they, didn't, they knew they couldn't use them, but they couldn't get away from not using them. And so as you go down through, they have frequent footnotes about what do the new Greek texts say, even though they didn't necessarily follow them in their translation. And, and people who value the traditional Greek text, they don't like reading down through a Bible that says, oh, this passage wasn't in in this Greek text and that passage wasn't in that Greek text because they feel like it casts unnecessary doubt on the word of God. And I'll talk about that in a little more detail later. But here's perhaps even a more pertinent issue in some people's minds. Perhaps the biggest issue with the New King James, and we're going to run into this with a lot of translations, is the issue of updates and who holds copyright control. 
I'm going to give you two specific examples that will illustrate this to you clearly, I hope. In 1 Peter 3, 3 and 4, the King James Version says, Whose outward adorning, let it not be that outward adorning, of plating the hair and so forth, but let it be the hidden man of the heart. And when the first printing of the new King James came out, it said this, as far as I know, do not let your adornment be outward. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart. But when the second printing of the new King James came out, it said this, do not let your adornment be merely outward. Now, that word merely is not in the traditional Greek manuscripts. It's not in the new Greek manuscripts. It's not in any Greek manuscripts. To be honest about it, they added it in italics. But it didn't sit well because many people felt like by inserting that one word, they just reversed the meaning of the verse. So some requested, could they have a reprint of the first edition the one that they had examined and felt comfortable with. And Thomas Nelson said, no. Of course, why would they? They felt like their newer edition was superior. Recently, a group of Beachy Amish men reached out to Thomas Nelson publishers because they wanted to produce a parallel Bible. They wanted the New King James in one column and they wanted Luther's German in the other. However, even though the text would not be altered in any way, and they were willing to pay the hefty fees that Thomas Nelson asked them to pay, they were still denied the opportunity to print this Bible because they did not have qualified scholars on their publication committee. The problem here is that it makes it very difficult to throw your lot in with a Bible like this because you do not know and have no control over the future changes that will be made, nor do you have the right or permission to continue printing the version you're happy with. I'm going to touch on one more, which some of you may not even have heard of. Possible exception to the above list is the modern English version. It was published in 2014. And stylistically, it reads well. When you're reading it, you think you were just reading something in English, uh, an article or something. Modern English version, MEV. Basically, what they tried to do was combine the King James Version language with current English. I mean, the, the, the formal style with current English, and it reads pretty well. But several things once again jump out at us. Uh, a tiny thing, perhaps, but in Isaiah 58, 8, they translate rear guard as reward. I have no idea why they did that. No other Bible that I know of does that. It seems like a mistake. Maybe they'll correct it in a later printing. I don't know. Uh, in John 8, they couldn't help themselves. They put in a footnote saying this isn't found in the oldest manuscripts, the woman taken in adultery. Um, but perhaps, once again, you, the, the biggest issue might be that they have strict copyright controls, number of verses you can use. It's all controlled by Charisma House and the Military Bible Association. And so you're just not sure how much you can lean on it. So what is the traditional text Bible publisher's response to these observations? We are making a particular effort, first of all, 
to not just update a few select archaic words. We are updating the words, the structure, and the punctuation to current English. That doesn't mean we're disregarding the Greek, but we are translating it to current English and not into Elizabethan English. We are also crafting a very generous use agreement that allows for unlimited personal use, both in print and electronically, free use for Sunday school materials and evangelistic publications, and a path toward offering the translation in the public domain after the work is finalized and settled. But you may still ask this question. Why are we even talking about these obscure translations of the Bible? Aren't there numerous good English translations out there that have already been broadly embraced? Why aren't we talking about the ESV or the NIV or the Amplified or the New Living or the Message Bible? Why not? There's plenty of people using them. So why not use one of the more mainstream current English versions? And that's what I want to, I want to address next. The first reason is that unlike the King James Version, or the New King James Version, or the various King James variants. These Bibles are translated from what some would call the New Greek Texts, and what I'm going to call Corrupted Greek Texts, and I'm only going to call them that in a, in a uh, manuscript-critical sense, which means that they are texts that have clearly been tampered with. Interestingly, all scholars agree that these texts do not represent the original writings, but there are various views on how these texts ought to be viewed. I just I want to I would just want to talk about that because to us this is one of the most critical reasons why we're doing what we're doing. Because if, if this was not one of our foundation stones, perhaps we would select one of these. Of course we'd still have the copyright problems and I'll touch on some of that later. But but to us this is this is a key thing. You may say that can't be true. How could it be translated from some other Greek text? I compared my ESV with my King James, and they read very similarly. Well, they are similar. The ESV and the King James are similar in formal style. I will give you that. And so in that way, they read similarly. Uh, I would still counter that if you did a word-for-word comparison, you'd probably find a, quite a more number of more differences than you thought. But there's a little sense here in which the fact that they actually do read similarly, and I hope I can clarify to you what I'm talking about by this, but it almost shows dishonesty. Let me give you the backstory so that you don't think I'm just making things up. So, back in 1881, when the British scholars, Westcott and Hort, published their newly compiled Greek text. They said that this compilation, this Greek text, was based on older and more reliable manuscripts of the New Testament. And they made this claim largely based on Hort's lengthy assertion that the majority of other manuscripts that had traditionally been used for the Bible uh, all came from a revised manuscript in 350 or 400 and didn't reflect the original text. Now, he didn't have evidence for that claim, though he reasoned from some secondary evidence, if you wish. But as time has gone on, 
I'm going to say the vast majority of scholars now agree that that assertion was false. Uh, he didn't actually have evidence. No evidence has showed up for it. It's difficult to abbreviate all of this because I could probably speak for several hours on it, but I'm going to try to put you put it in a little nutshell for you. The debate largely concerns two Greek manuscripts, and for the most part, that's the vast majority of, of what we're talking about here when we're talking about what's used to compile this newer Greek text. Now, both of these manuscripts are bound volumes, and they're copies of a number of manuscripts. So they're sort of like Bibles, though they're not complete. And they're copied in fixed-width columns with no spaces between the words and more or less fixed number of characters per line. So just very, very uniform. Uh, one is in three columns per page, and the other is in four columns per page. So one of them is known as Sinaiticus. Sometimes it's referred to as Aleph. It contains about half of the Old Testament along with the Apocrypha, and that's commonly known as the Septuagint, in case you are not sure of the connection there, along with the New Testament and the extra-biblical books of the Apostle Barnabas and the Shepherd by Hermas. And scholars say by looking at the style of the writing, that it's similar to writing the writing style between three and 400, something like that. A lot of times when people are talking about manuscripts, they're like, how do they date the manuscripts? How do they know when they were written? They look at the writing styles, the writing style between three and 400. Vaticanus is the other manuscript. It's sometimes known as B. It contains most of the Old Testament, the Apocrypha, once again, a, a copy of the Septuagint, along with the New Testament. And scholars say that in general, the writing style is similar to the style used between three and 400, but that parts of the book appear to be written in the 1400s. Okay. So what's the problem with these two manuscripts? There's plenty of manuscripts. Why not look at these? Maybe they're older and better. It would be hard to conclude on examination that these are more reliable manuscripts. Analysis of Codex... Sinaiticus shows between three and six scribes worked on the project. If you're writing a whole Bible, it wouldn't be so surprising if you had a number of people writing. But it also shows at least nine editors clearly coming along afterwards, crossing things out, writing in the margins, making changes. Okay. Codex Vaticanus, three or four scribes working on the project, but at least seven editors coming along, making changes, writing things in the margin, and so forth. The two volumes frequently disagree with each other. If you just compare the Gospels, there are 3,000 differences just between those two manuscripts. They have numerous obvious copying mistakes to the extent that one scholar said, he wonders if the scribes knew Greek. Now, it was copied in Alexandria in Egypt, so perhaps the scribes didn't know Greek, and I don't know if that matters, but the sorts of mistakes that were made, he just assumed if you knew Greek, you wouldn't make that mistake because you would know that that doesn't make sense in Greek. One of the interesting things about having those fixed columns with a relatively fixed number of characters and everything easy to, to compare is that if you compare them to other manuscripts that are supposedly not, not as old or whatever, you'll notice that many times when you have lines that start with the same word or two, and maybe there are a few lines apart, 
the errors or the changes or the differences are the skipping of the intervening lines. So it's not like, oh, they left that phrase out or they added that phrase and it still makes sense without it or with it. And so which reading is correct? It's like, wow, they left out three lines right there because those two lines start with the same two words. And that's it. It doesn't make sense. It's just you were copying along and you copied that line and then you looked and you thought you had copied because you saw something that was similar and you just kept copying. They have more editorial notes and changes than any other manuscript of the New Testament. But if after you examined those and you looked at all of that, you still said to yourself, these are the oldest and the best manuscripts and we should, we should base our work on them, wouldn't you base your work on them? You would think that you would. But while claiming that these are the oldest and most reliable manuscripts, these scholars pick and choose what they're going to include and what they're not going to include, which leaves people under the false impression about the authenticity of the manuscripts. They know that if they actually copied and gave to you what the manuscripts said, their claim of oldest and most reliable wouldn't matter because you would notice it doesn't make any sense. But while pretending that they're using them because they're the oldest and most reliable, they instead pick the readings to make them sound good so that they can say it and still have you believe them. To me, that seems dishonest. For instance, these supposedly more reliable manuscripts incorrectly list the distance to Emmaus. Because for hundreds of years after the destruction of Jerusalem, nobody knew where Emmaus was. Later, when archaeologists found Emmaus, they found out the distance to Emmaus is exactly the distance that's listed in all the traditional manuscripts. But it's wrong in these two. But if you check your Bible, it'll have the right distance. You check the compiled Greek manuscript, it'll have the right distance. Where did they get it? They went to the traditional manuscripts to pick that one. Because they knew if you read it and then you read about what was going on, you'd say, well, that's wrong. That's not reliable. In Luke 23, 34, these manuscripts don't have the words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But read your Bible. doesn't matter which English version you pick up. Read your, see if you can find an English version that doesn't have those words. They'll have a footnote. Some of them will, quite a few of them will have a footnote. Interestingly, the New King James doesn't use those manuscripts at all, but they have a footnote there saying, well, this verse isn't included in the older and more. Even in places where the differences are reproduced to some degree, the impression left, I'm going to say, is a false one. For instance, at the last 12 verses of Mark, where it gives Jesus resurrection, Many of these versions have a footnote saying these verses are not found in the oldest and most reliable manuscripts. Some even set it off in the text with a section with bradicics or a separate heading saying alternative ending to the book of Mark. Their claim is technically true. Because if you look in these two manuscripts, you will not find that resurrection account in the book of Mark. But what they're not telling you, and what to me seems something people ought to know if they're going to make any sort of decision based on this is that there is a blank space left at the end of the book of Mark that's just the right space for including those verses before they begin writing the book of Luke. 
In the one manuscript, it is the exact number of lines needed to complete the book of Mark. And they waste an entire column to leave the space open for it, which they don't do anywhere else in the New Testament. In the other manuscript, you look at it and you say, oh, that's not quite enough lines. Hmm, maybe that's accurate. And then you look at it and you'll notice that the last five lines at the bottom of this column, the scribe spaces out his letters double space compared to the rest of the work he's doing so that those lines can just make it into the next column so they can leave that column blank and then go on to Luke. So, yes, technically, these oldest manuscripts do not have the end of the book of Mark. But is it a really fair assertion to place that sort of footnote in there and say, but the oldest text and the most reliable text don't don't record Jesus' resurrection, their account at the end of Mark. Similarly, in John 8, where the account is recorded of the woman taken in adultery, almost every one of these uh, newer English Bible versions will have a footnote saying that this account is not included in the oldest and best manuscripts. Okay. Partially true. I mean, it's it's not like they're outright lying about that. Partially true. But what they do not explain, and what I think it's important for people to know if they're going to make any sort of informed decision on it, is that the manuscripts they're generally talking about when they say it's missing are lectionaries. And if you don't know what a lectionary it is, it's, it's selected Sunday readings. It's sort of like a Sunday school lesson. And in those lectionaries... They did not, they traditionally skipped the account of the women taken in adultery because they were focusing on Jesus' words that he's the living water and Jesus' words that he's the light of the world. Can you imagine someone turning to something like Roddenstaff Sunday School materials to prove that something was never in the Bible? How can modern Bible scholars and translators obvious, uh, honestly embrace this as, as a sound textual, textual basis? First of all, most of them don't know much about it. When Westcott and Hort went through and compiled their work, and they decided not only which readings to take, but which case they were going to take the note in the margin instead of the text there, or the change made by an editor later instead of the text, or whether they're going to go to a completely different text that was traditional and take the reading from there. They made those decisions, and when they were done making those decisions, what they put together reads pretty well. And it makes a nice Greek volume. And when you publish that volume and then you let people buy it and read it, they're not looking at the manuscripts. How are they supposed to know? In a similar way, building on Westcott and Hort's work, the German Bible Society does this sort of thing every year. They, they publish their revised volume. They do this same sort of picking and choosing, and they call it eclectic manuscript compilation or whatever it is. And once you get their volume, it just looks like a nice, neat printing of Greek. You have no way of knowing that the first half of the verse came from a manuscript way over there and the second half of the verse came from a manuscript way over there. How are you supposed to know that? How are you supposed to know that in in the published volume, there is no selection of, say, four or five verses that you can find anywhere in any manuscript? Because they picked and chosen tiny parts from all over the place to come up with their official reading. Secondly, this was hotly debated in the time of Westcott and Hort because it was a brand new thing and there were scholars who were willing to go along and there were scholars who were not willing to go along. And there was a lot written about it. 
But there was one compelling reason why the majority of scholars jumped on the West Cottonhort bandwagon. And I wonder if you know what it is. And I wonder if most Christians today who pick up their local ESV or their NIV or whatever know what it is. Because to me, while this reasoning makes sense in some sort of a scholarly sense, it shouldn't make sense to a Christian. The reasoning goes something like this. When you write something, say you've been asked to write an article or something, don't you just start with like a a rough draft of fragmentary ideas that may not flow together very well or perhaps don't make a whole lot of sense. And then later on, you come back and you revise them and you add more things and eventually it's edited and then it becomes a smooth reading article and it's published, right? And furthermore, when you study religions across the world, don't you typically find that at some point there's a holy man or a prophet or a thinker who proposes some unusual ideas and they maybe not make that great sense, but they they catch the mind of somebody and they start a little movement. And then over time, those ideas are developed and they're refined and they're polished and eventually you have a full-blown religion. It has its own publications and it's all great. So the theory is, why wouldn't Christianity be the same? Wouldn't Christianity follow that same track of all of this other stuff that scholars are looking at? Why would we expect that the original writings of Christianity should make some sort of sense? Wouldn't you expect that Christianity would be contradictory and fragmentary at first and then gradually over time work itself into a polished religion and become more comprehensive and understandable? To them, that was an overwhelmingly compelling idea because it followed with their study of other religions and their study of other of other thought development. There's two problems with that. First of all, I don't see how you can be a Christian and agree with that. We don't believe it. Secondly, when you look at the manuscript evidence that they found that was supposed to support this idea, they were looking for this solution and they found it. It doesn't support the idea. As badly copied as that text is, it is still a wonderful reflection of the fact that you can tell the underlying text was sound. It's the miscopying errors that are quite clear and easy to see. It's the editorial notes where people came along and changed things and revised and updated them. That's what makes most of the difference. So there's no way you can argue even looking at those texts to say, oh, here's the proof that Christianity was originally fragmentary because instead it proves that Christianity was originally sound and polished and then it was changed into something that ended up looking somewhat fragmentary. If you picked up an old book at a yard sale and you saw a bunch of writing in the margin and on the title page and things crossed out and highlighted and this and that, you wouldn't say, aha, I found the original work of the original author. You would say, I found a book and somebody wrote in it. The two key rules that West Cotton Hort used when they compiled the Greek text was this. The shorter reading is correct. The less sensible reading is correct. And what they admitted in their very carefully written companion volume when they explained their procedures to their fellow scholars was that many times when they were compiling their work, they found that these two rules conflicted. The shorter reading made sense or whatever. And so it was up to them to decide in all of these cases which reading they were going to take. But it points to a fundamental problem. 
why would you believe the shorter reading is always correct or the least sensible reading is always correct? One of the key arguments of the scholars today who still hold this is that Christians throughout the ages have always been free to add to their manuscripts and to polish them and to make them sound better than they did. But history doesn't show that. Christians have valued their manuscripts. They have copied them carefully. They have treasured their manuscripts and they have been slow to change them. So it's really just two different ways of looking at it. So the upshot of all of this is not to say that any modern English version you pick up is going to be littered with errors because, like I said, most of them don't. They change to read like the traditional text most of the time. They know they're not going to get away with, with following this. But in so doing, they cast doubt on the authenticity and reliability of the traditional biblical text. You can't be reading along through a section and, and say, woman taken in adultery, and then read a note saying, well, this isn't found in the original manuscripts, and then what are you going to say to yourself? Well, somebody made that up in the Middle Ages and inserted it into the text. And a lot of people say, well, who cares if the resurrection is missing from the book of Mark? It's still found in Matthew and Luke, so what difference does it make? We haven't lost anything. Well, to the common person, maybe you think, oh, maybe we haven't. But maybe you don't know the whole rest of the scholarly scope because the argument is, and this is very broad and very well accepted in scholarly circles, Mark is the first gospel written. Matthew and Luke follow along and build off of what Mark has done. So if you're a scholar and you just told people that it wasn't found in Mark, basically what you're saying is it didn't happen. It wasn't found. It wasn't recorded. Those later books, Matthew and Luke thought, well, we need a resurrection account. So they added it in. So when do we move to that step? Now, let's turn our attention to a separate issue. And this particularly applies to uh, the New Living Translation, the Message Bible, and some of those. And that is the issue of translational style. The problem is, and I've had people say this, and I understand. But they'll say, oh, I'm reading the, the New Living Translation in my personal Bible study because it reads well and I like it and I can understand it easily. Or I have a Message Bible on my desk because it's just so much easier to understand than the King James or, or whatever. I'll give it to you. They flow well. They read well. They're easy to understand for the most part. But the problem is, Bibles like the New Living Translation and the Message are not very close to what the Greek manuscripts say. So, I'm not necessarily saying that when they write what they think is a, is a good thought in relation to the text that they're misleading you necessarily. But it's essentially you reading a commentary on the text and not reading the text itself. So you need to ask yourself, do I trust this commentary? Do I agree with what it has to say? Can I compare it with other things? Usually fairly sound. When you get to places that are doctrinally disputed, you might find a person's or a group's uh, bias Creeping in. I want to give you an example that I don't think is tied to a, de- a debated passage. I want, to, I want to look at Matthew 7 6 just because it fascinates me personally. So, Matthew 7 6 is in the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus talks about uh, the King James says, Give not that which is holy to the dogs. 
Now, if I were going to take a super literal English translation of the Greek, it would sound something like this. And I'll try to read it slowly so I don't mislead you or confuse you. Not you would give that sacred the two dogs, nor you would throw the pearls your before the hogs, something like that. So you turn to something like the literal standard version who tries to take a pretty literal approach, and they will update the structure somewhat so that it sounds a little more like English, but it's still still quite literal, and they have something like this. You may not give that which is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before the pigs. Let's turn to the ESV, see what they have to say. They've updated it into current English. Still, you'll find it's Pretty much goes with the flow. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs. Right? Has anything changed? Not much. Just reads a little more smoothly. Now, we could, if we wanted to, take this perhaps even further, depending on how we reason from the Greek. And I don't want to get into a huge rabbit trail here, but this fascinates me, so I'm going to tell you. This verse, an example of Greek logic structure, which is different than English logic structure. This is called a chiasm, and that's because it's named after the Greek letter X, like this. So we tend to put matching points at the beginning and end, and then matching points in, and the matching points, and usually the main point is in the middle. So, don't give that which is sacred to the dogs, and then he ends out with, because they'll tear you up. Those two match. Dogs tear you up. And then you look in the middle, Don't cast your pearls before the pigs. Why? Because they're going to trample them under their feet. So trampling pigs, that goes together, right? So the Greek reader, they're used to that all the time. You'll find this sort of structure all throughout the Bible. Hebrews did it too. Uh, Chiastic structure is very common. So you could say, well, I want to confuse my readers. I'm going to put it in logical order. So I'm going to say, don't, do not give dogs what is holy so they don't turn and attack you. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them under their feet. I think you could perhaps make an argument for that. But this is what I want to read to you. Listen to what the Message Bible does. Do you feel like you have a good grasp of what the Greek says? Do you have a, like a good grasp of what the verse is saying by now? Here's the Message Bible. Don't be flipped with the sacred. Banter and silliness give no honor to God. Don't reduce holy mysteries to slogans. In trying to be relevant, you're only being cute and inviting sacrilege. So what you got is a preacher and not a translator. Because that's not what it says. It's not even close to what it says. It's not even a rewording of what it says. It's a completely different thing. And what they're saying is that they've translated it not linguistically, they've translated it culturally. But the problem with that, I don't mind someone telling me, well, here's a better understanding. But the problem with that is I don't know whether you're on track or not. If that's my primary Bible, who knows? This is how they interpreted it. What is the ideal translation style and methodology? I assume we agree that if we translate in a very wooden, literal translation like I first gave you, you'd say, "Ah, that's confusing, it doesn't flow, I don't really understand. And I suppose we agree that something like the Message Bible is pretty far out and we don't feel comfortable with that, but where do we fall in between? What do we look at? Well, here are some considerations which make it difficult to find the perfect balance. 
For, for example, many people realize that the word order in Greek is different than the word ordering in English. And so they say, okay, we'll have to change a few words. But few people realize that word order in Greek doesn't even mean the same thing that it does in English. In fact, since the intended function of the word in the sentence is communicated by the word ending instead of by its place in the sentence, oftentimes word order in Greek is completely irrelevant. But in English, it is very important. We tell what a word is by where it is in the sentence. If we say Bill hit the ball, we know that's completely different than the ball hit Bill or, right? You say Bill hit Bob, Bob hit Bill, right? It changes. In Greek, it doesn't matter because you know. You know which one's the direct object, you know which one's the subject. If we said, did Dan come to the meeting? Or we said, Dan did come to the meeting? Yeah, they're different. In English, they're different. John 1.1 1, 1 says in the King James, in the beginning was the word. And then if you translate the Greek very literally, and God was the word. The problem here is that the construction means that the word, which is a reference to Jesus here we know, was very God or was God himself. And if you translate it in that, like, like I read it there, you don't really get that idea in English. And so if you look at the English translations, you'll see they all say something like, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God. Because that, that conveys it in English similar to the, the Greek idea. Not only is word order an issue, but Greek verb tenses are an issue. Because English verb tenses are completely different. We don't even have the same English verb tenses as they had Greek verb tenses. They were used differently. They conveyed different meanings. All those nuance of language, if you've learned more than one language, you're blessed because you understand how difficult it can be conveying some of those things and some of the nuances and differences. Some Bibles, like the literal standard version, talk about we retain the Greek verb tenses every time. Sounds great as an advertising slogan, but what does that actually mean? Even if you chose an English tense for every Greek tense and then followed that through in every case, readers would be easily confused into thinking that you meant something different because you used an unusual English verb tense. They figured maybe you meant something unusual when you didn't because in Greek, that's a common verb tense. They use it all the time and they understand there's nothing unusual about it. For instance, we just looked at that verse in Matthew 7, 6. And the verse we looked at, the Greek uses a subjunctive mood verb. I talked about that a lot. And here I don't have time to give you a grammar lesson tonight. And it's a little strange. But I'll, hopefully I'll give you a little bit of an idea here. The literal standard version decided to translate it like this. You may not give. Okay. The problem is that in English, when we hear something like you may not give, that to us sounds like a command. You may not do that, right? But that's not what subjunctive is at all. Subjunctive is contrary to fact. He's giving a hypothetical example. So if we were actually to translate it into English, we would probably something like, you wouldn't give something holy to the dogs, right? And so it becomes difficult. You can't really do this A to A, B to B, sort of thing. Another example of some of the complexity involved, um, uh, well, this one gets interesting. <laughs> I had a, had a minister recently say, he was reading from Ephesians chapter 2, 
And he said, well, we can skip the italicized words in verse one because they don't belong in the text. This is a great dispute among translators because the common reader thinks that when you see an italicized word, that's an optional word. No, that's almost like shorthand from one translator to another. Because it's very rare that a translator puts anything into the text that isn't indicated by the text. But here's a very, very unique situation. What's happening in Ephesians 2, 1 to 5? Well, what we have here is a very difficult situation for a translator to resolve. It's called an elliptical inclusio. And I'm going to explain it to you best I can. If you looked it up in the Strong's Concordance, it wouldn't help you. Looked it up in the Interliner Bible, no help at all. To put it very simply, an inclusio is like a written parenthesis. But they didn't use punctuation marks back then, so they just wrote it out. Basically, what you have is you have an introduction and a conclusion, and they show that they're the beginning and end of a section. In Ephesians 2.1, you have this verse. And you have the quickened who are dead in trespasses and sins. Okay? If you jump down to 2.5, he says this. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. Now, I said that kind of quick. Maybe you don't realize. Those are both saying almost exactly the same thing. You have quickened dead. And then in verse 5, you have dead quickened. Now, I'm going to take you one step further I just talked about chiasm, right? You notice the quickens are at the end. The deads are in the middle. See how that's laid out? It wasn't quick and dead, quick and dead. It's quick and dead, dead quickened. Okay, what's the reason for this? Read the intervening verses, you'll find out. He's talking about dead in verses two to four. So it's perfectly correct if you're using this this written parenthesis that you would put dead around the section on dead. Right. And then it's perfectly correct that you would put quickened or alive on the sections that tied the dead to the alive on both ends. All right. I mean, this gets a little carried away, but this is the beauty of some of the things like the, the language in the Greek. It's fascinating. And you can see it in English, which is, makes it even more fascinating. So the thing is. <clears throat> it makes it so hard in English because what Paul does here. <clears throat> is he uses a hanging participle in verse 1 which has the reader saying where is the rest of the parenthesis and then you're held in suspense as you read through a whole four verses and then you get down to verse 5 and you're like oh It was about as good as you could do to like leave a blank there and then finish it so that the reader's like, why, Paul? And the effect of it is it places double emphasis on made alive. How do you translate that? Are you going to write two paragraphs in the notes somewhere? How are you going to translate it? And so the King James translators decided that it would be better for the English reader to at least get what Paul was saying rather than miss what Paul was saying because if you leave it out the emphasis on alive is made at least half 
instead of times two. So there you're stuck. What are you going to do with it? Right? So they put it in parentheses. Did they make the right decision? Well, we can think about it now that we understand it a little better, I guess. Here's the problem. And I didn't even go into individual words because that's a huge long list. People think that when you translate the Bible, it's simply a matter of a matching game. You grab word from this box and you find the matching word from this box and then you got a translation. It's not true. These sorts of translational decisions have to be made. And this leads me to something that puzzles me, and I'm not sure what exactly to do about it, and I wonder why I never hear it discussed. The Anabaptists all down through history have willingly trusted people to make the translational decisions that need to be made, the hundreds of translational decisions that need to be made, by people who they do not agree with theologically or doctrinally, who would not be allowed to be church members and who would not be invited to preach in their pulpits. We know that these people openly embrace participation in worldly warfare, unconditional eternal security, divorce and remarriage, disregard of the headship veiling, as a host of other things, and they actively write in their material, no Bible translation can be valid unless it is translated by a Calvinist. But one of the key things I hear when I talk about a new English Bible translation that's largely done by Anabaptist people is, well, is it going to be an Anabaptist Bible? Are you going to have a Calvinist review it? Hmm. You may say, well, Really, all you need to do is translate the words. So it doesn't matter who translates it. In a sense, that's true. If you're unbiased and you're careful and you translate the words, I'm not trying to say that they're just hugely misleading. You will have a good basis. Many of the words are fairly easy to translate. I don't want to paint a false uh, picture here. But there are a lot more interpretive decisions that have to be made than many people realize. In response to these things, traditional text Bible publishers have made several important decisions. First, we have chosen to firmly ground our Bible translation in the traditional Greek and Hebrew manuscripts. And we will not be taking any readings or footnotes from the variations introduced by the corrupted texts. Second, we do several specific things to try to avoid any bias in the translation if possible. Number one, we have chosen a formal translational style instead of that free-flowing interpretive style we saw in the Message Bible. Furthermore, in cases where the text is definitely ambiguous or could be translated two different ways, We seek either to preserve the ambiguity so the reader can say, well, that's a little ambiguous. Let me think about it. Or if we can't do that reasonably to include the alternative reading in a footnote so someone can say, oh, it could also be translated that way. Thirdly, we do have a variety of people reviewing the text, both those from Anabaptist background and those from non-Anabaptist background. And we have hired a conservative 
Reformed scholar who does agree with us about the traditional texts and interestingly thinks a lot like we do um, to review the text and let us know if he sees something that seems way off base to him to make sure that we're not being perhaps biased. And finally, we are freely distributing our work for wide public review to make sure that we're not straying from the traditional understandings of the text. In short, our goal is to produce a Bible translated from the tradition of manuscripts that remains true to the original languages while retaining the formal style of the King James, following the current rules of English grammar and being easy to read. And not all of those things are 100% possible, but we're trying to follow them largely in that order. We understand that even if done well, our translation will not be quickly embraced by all Anabaptist groups. But we do hope that over time, there can be a broad embrace of this Bible allowing for a unifying and broadly accepted translation that is easy to read and understand, suitable for use in personal Bible study, formal worship services, and evangelistic efforts so that we do not feel compelled to use a different Bible for evangelism than we use in our churches. Specifically, to encourage broad acceptance and avoid undue sectarian influence, we have intentionally avoided aligning ourselves with a specific Anabaptist group. Instead, we have chosen to include a variety of representatives from conservative Anabaptist groups on our board. Now, that, include, that concludes uh, the thoughts I had prepared, but there were some specific questions that were raised that I also want to address here uh, before I take the questions you've been thinking about. And the first one was this. What about the literal standard version, legacy standard Bible, or English standard version specifically? Aren't these fairly literal translations with formal styles? Yes, all of these are fairly formal translations of the Bible, but they are problematic, and this is why. The literal standard version, for instance, was never intended to be a mainstream Bible. It was created as a scholarly Bible for those who did not know the original languages. Because of this, it does not flow well, does not seem to work well for public reading. It also leans on modern scholarship, and it leans heavily on corrupted manuscripts. <clears throat> for instance, it brackets the account of the woman taken in adultery in John 8, and it includes an erroneous reading in Genesis 5 that, if you look carefully, has Methuselah outliving the flood. The Legacy Standard Bible, which is a moderate revision of the New American Standard Bible, is also based on the corrupted Alexandrian manuscripts. And as such, it includes the now common note at Mark 16 about the earliest manuscripts not including the resurrection account, as well as similar note in John 8 about the woman taken in adultery. And in addition to these errors, the English Standard Version, which is a moderate revision of the Revised Standard Version, also includes other erroneous readings, such as listing the father of Jehoshaphat in Matthew 1 as Asaph instead of Asa, and listing Manasseh as the father of Amos instead of Ammon. Both the Legacy Standard Bible and the English Standard Bible have numerous shortened readings, like Romans 8.1, in which they both read, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Instead of the traditional, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. These kinds of changes make it difficult to embrace or fully embrace these as reliable Bibles. 
In addition, Crossway, the publisher of the ESV, reversed a 2016 announcement that they would stop revising the text and instead stated that they will continue to revise the text indefinitely. We don't know what that means, but it just holds it in sort of a, you know, of a balance. And you don't know what's going to happen in future editions. Second question. If you're starting with a fresh translation, why not switch to using the Septuagint as the manuscript basis of the Old Testament instead of the Masoretic text? Now, this is perhaps a bit of a technical question, but it has been somewhat discussed, so we do hear this question fairly frequently. Here are a few of the key reasons we have chosen not to base our translation of the Old Testament off of the Greek Septuagint, but instead to use the Hebrew Masoretic text. First, and this is why I gave a little lengthier of a, of a discussion earlier, the primary copies of the Septuagint we have are found in those two corrupted Alexandrian texts that I already talked about. Not surprisingly, the copies of the Septuagint we have differ so much from each other that we have no way to actually determine what the original might have said. Indeed, examination of the Septuagint copies shows that some books are translated in a literal manner, some are translated in an interpretive paraphrase, and some are a mix of both. Large sections of books are left out, and similar to the corrupted New Testament manuscripts, changes are made to the text that seem to be obvious attempts to harmonize the text with popular beliefs of that time. For instance, the Genesis genealogies are adjusted to show a gradual diminishing of age until Abraham instead of the rapid change after the flood as shown in the Hebrew text. And this is what results in having Methuselah and some of his uh, other of Noah's ancestors outliving the flood. Not surprisingly, a careful comparison has shown that the Hebrew Masoretic text much more closely aligns with the earliest manuscripts, for instance, like the Dead Sea Scrolls, than the Septuagint versions do. So that's two key problems. First of all, we don't know what the Septuagint said. And secondly, the Septuagint that we do have is corrupted. However, if we could discover a good copy of the Septuagint to go by, it still would be hard to make the case for translating from Greek instead of translating from Hebrew. Much nuance is lost when you translate from one language to the next, and to do third hand, it becomes even more complicated and very difficult to make sure that you're doing it accurately. Much has been made of a variety of readings between the Old Testament as translated from the Masoretic Hebrew text and the New Testament as translated from the Greek text when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament. They'll say, well, they're different. You know, it says it this way in the New Testament, it says it that way in the Old Testament. But what a lot of people don't realize is that most of these differences actually come from different ways the translators chose to translate the Hebrew into Greek and then into English. You're comparing English, whatever. Uh, it doesn't... The same Hebrew word, just like the same Greek word, can be translated different ways depending on how you interpret it. And by the time you end up over here, it's going to perhaps read differently than if it, it ended up over here. A consideration of the Greek in light of the Hebrew usually allows the passage to be translated in a very similar manner in both the Old and New Testaments. It's just quite difficult for translators to keep all the cross-references in mind when they're translating in the New and then they're translating in the Old and so forth. And that was even worse before computerized indexing like we have today. 
so one thing that we're trying to do uh, in our translation project is keep in mind if you're translating the Greek text and you say, well, this could be worded this way or this could be worded this way. They're both equally valid. Well, what, how, how do you translate it from the Hebrew? Oh, they both say the exact same thing. Uh, so sometimes that's helpful. The third question was, is it worth it to go all the time and expense of producing another Bible version when there's so many versions already? Why not instead use our resources for foreign missions or something like that that's more valuable? Well, I hope that I've made the case, at least from our perspective, why we believe the available versions are not satisfactory. Furthermore, we have been frankly shocked by the number of people who agree, who agree with us. We, we thought starting out that we'd be a small fringe something in a corner somewhere, and we said, well, we all agree with this, so we're going to work on it for our own children or our own use. And then once the news got out, uh, there were a whole host of people who said, yes, this is what we need. Uh, we've gotten very generous support. We have been blessed and, and overwhelmed. And here's a question that comes to my mind. Is it really possible for us to be effective in foreign mission work when we ourselves do not have a thorough understanding of the Bible? And you might say, well, that's not true. I taught school for 21 years, and I got into the habit of reading a Bible passage in the morning and asking my students what different ones of the words meant, archaic words. And I thought, well, maybe they'll know half of them, or maybe they'll know three-quarters of them. They didn't know most of them. They either gave me the wrong definition, or they said, I don't know what that means. So how effective will we be at evangelism if we're already not passing a good understanding of our sound foundation of the Bible onto our own children? And finally, I'll just say this. Our team is not really suited to translating the Bible into foreign languages. We don't have a lot of skill in some of the people groups that don't have Bibles in their language. We feel like this is, this is what we're suited for. This is what we're called to do. So this is the work that we are doing, and we certainly trust and pray that God will continue to prosper the work for his glory and for the furtherance of his kingdom. Now I should open the floor for a couple of questions. I don't think we have much time, but if you had something pressing, I'll try to clarify or, or do my best to explain. Yes? Just a little clarification. <clears throat> Oh, the great debate. Um, to answer it simply, yes. Uh, uh, what about name differences between the Old Testament and the New Testament? <clears throat> We have essentially gone out on a limb and done something that basically no other Bible translation felt comfortable doing, and I hope we're okay with that. But we have chosen to keep the names consistent throughout the Bible. So if he's introduced as Elijah in the Old Testament, he's going to be Elijah in the New Testament. If he's been introduced as Joshua in the Old Testament, it's going to be Joshua in the New Testament, uh, just because... 
that's really how it was. That's what their names were. I mean, yeah, I was translating the Greek, and then we could translate into English again. But, you know, what else? Now, if they're introduced in the New Testament with a Hebrew name, we're just going to keep it the way it is because there's no continuity that we need to preserve. So that's, that's what we have chosen, chosen to do. Uh, there's probably one exception to that, sort of, kind of, which is an argument could be made that James doesn't actually exist because if you look at the manuscripts, he's not even called James. He's called Jacob. So throughout the New Testament, we could just call him the Apostle Jacob. But since we haven't been doing that for how many hundreds of years, we're not going to try changing it now. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> yes. The uh, Latin Vulgate was used, I think, in the King James. Is that correct? Uh, that's an interesting question to answer. Uh, yeah, that's not my question. My question is, what do you think of the Latin Vulgate? It's not, it's not accurate, right? Or it's, uh, it has a lot of, to do with Catholicism. Mm. The problem with a lot of these questions is they're not cut and dried, simple, up, down. They're a lot more complicated than they seem. Uh, my understanding actually is that the Latin Vulgate, well, I should clarify first about what I've, what I've already talked about, things like the Septuagint, the Alexandrian manuscripts, and so forth. It might sound like everything is completely different. They're not. There's huge agreement on all fronts, which is amazing as we think about the Word of God. And it's also true with the Latin Vulgate. There's huge agreement between the Latin Vulgate and the traditional manuscripts and so forth. So what we end up debating about is the few places where they differ. The few places that are different, then what? That sort of thing. And the, the King James translators and some of the early English translators ran into a lot of the same problem that uh, we are tasked with today. And it's one of the heated debates that I, I suppose will, will influence maybe a few of our decisions. And that is in their day, they had to decide, are we going to keep the traditional reading or are we going to keep the Greek reading? And in a couple of cases, they chose to keep the traditional reading, even though they didn't have good Greek support. So that is a bit of a challenge. But it's, 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 very, it's a very few verses, a very few places. Yes. How far along are you on this project, and what is the uh, proposed um, <laughs> expiration of this committee? Uh, yes. Everyone wants a project plan and a timeline, and we kind of pull out our hair and say, how can we know? So I can tell you where we are. Uh, the Book of Mark is printed for public review. We're distributing copies of that to whoever is interested. The Book of Luke is going to be printed for public review in the next couple of months, so we expect it should be out probably sometime in the summer. The Book of Matthew will follow very soon after that, possibly by the end of the year. The book of John is um, in, in process, but it will probably take a, a number of months beyond that. So at that point, then, we would like to publish a volume that includes the combined four Gospels so that we can get that into people's hands for those who are interested. And then, of course, we'll proceed to the New Testament. Then we want to publish a complete New Testament and then later a complete Bible. It is, uh, it is very time-consuming work. It is very, very difficult, detailed sort of work. 
And if you were translating this into a tribal language where they had no other Bible, you might say, well, just the faster, the better, and uh, we'll revise it later. But when you're doing it for a, a populace that already has some sound English Bibles and they don't want to see one that's inferior to the one they already have, it becomes very, very important. And sometimes we'll, we'll have the editorial discussion or review or notes on a chapter maybe taking 20 pages and the chapter only took two pages uh, because you want to make sure that you're you're being accurate and you're doing it well and that you're not making assumptions. So unfortunately, though a lot of people would like to see this complete in five years, I can pretty much guarantee it's not going to be done in five years, probably looking more at 10 years or 10 plus years uh, to complete the project. So. Is there any other support for the readings of the two ancient documents? The, I don't know how to say it, the Vaticanus and the Is there any other manuscripts that, are, that have the same readings as them? And the second question is, do those two manuscripts have the woman caught in adultery in them? I do not think either of them have the account of the woman taken in adultery um, when you when you get to start talking about specific manuscripts, okay, the, so the simple answer to your question is yes, I think. Um, because there is generally what's called a collection of manuscripts that's thought to be the Alexandrian family. So Westcott and Hort worked off of these two manuscripts. Since that time, some other manuscripts have been found. Typically, they're fragments. There may be a page or a book or a part of a book or something like that. And when you get into these disputed readings you're starting to look at, uh, okay, so this reading agrees with that manuscript, but not that one. And so I've got a fragment over here that combines with this, but it comes from the same geographic area, this sort of thing. And then you start asking yourself, could it be possible that these two manuscripts were copied by the same group or the same person, that sort of thing. So typically what we find is the manuscripts and the manuscript fragments that are found in Alexandria, in Egypt, in that, in that region of the world, tend to tend to work together in sort of a general way of reading similarly, that we have far fewer of those manuscripts. And then we have another body of manuscripts in, an, in another geographic area that sort of tends to read together, but they're, they're a minority, and they tend to be on the, on the wide wings like in the opposite way. So the Alexandrian manuscripts often tend to read, leave things out. They often tend to read shorter. And we have another little body of manuscripts that tends to read long, like it tends to add a lot of additional material. And then we have the main manuscripts that cover the area that's typically known, what we would think of as the, as the early Christian area around Ephesus and all of the churches and across to Italy and you know some of some of those a big broad spread of that region, uh, in which we have thousands of manuscripts from all over the area, different regions, different times, different centuries, and they all tend to read together in harmony as well. So that's that's just a quick overview of that. Yeah. Would you be able to give some examples, like some well-known verses, but with the translation that you're doing, just to see what the difference is? Uh, I can read you some. And I don't know if anything actually ever arrived here, but I was hoping there would be some additional materials in the back, like if you wanted to sign up for a copy of this or you wanted to see a newsletter or something. Um, 
But let me just, just, I don't know, read to you a few verses in case you want to get sort of a feel for how this is reading at this point in, in Mark chapter 2, <clears throat> verse uh, 25 to 28. And if you want to follow along in your King James or something and, and do a comparison, it'll give you at least a, a feel for like sort of the, the translational style or the uh, approach, approach that we've chosen to take. <clears throat> So this is Matthew, I mean Mark, this is Mark chapter 2, and I'm starting at um, verse 25. And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he had need and was hungry and those who were with him? How he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar the high priest and ate the presented bread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priest's. And gave also to those who are with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. So I think possibly what you'll hear there is you'll hear a basic flow relatively similar to the King James. And you may notice a translational decision or two that varies from what you've seen there. Um, I don't know if that's an unusual example, but I think that gives you a little bit of an idea. Going back to the question of names, what are you doing with stuff like Joshua, Jesus, um, Lazarus versus Eliezer between the Old and the New Testament? So we realize that most of the people named in the Gospels uh, have Aramaic names. So you could translate them into Hebrew. Some versions, I mean, from essentially from Hebrew, the, the Hebrew form, some translations do. We have not chosen to do that. We are using the Greek form for everyone who's introduced in the New Testament. We're only retaining the Hebrew forms for people who have already been introduced in the Old Testament, who you already know by that name, so you don't get confused because now they have two names. That's all. Yeah. So in your translation process, do you translate it from the Greek uh, in the New Testament and Hebrew in the Old Testament, and then also from the manuscripts, and then your translation, you compare that to the King James and others, or how do you go about that? Or do you just go with the original and stick with however that folds out? Like I noticed it seemed seemed fairly important to you that it has the the general feel of the King James. Just wondering how you do that. Yes. It's hard for me to say how our approach actually um, compares because I haven't been inside other other Bible translational committees. But uh, I sort of feel like our approach might be a, a little bit unique. So we'll begin by compiling, largely looking at uh, the traditional Greek text, for instance, since we're working in the New Testament. And then it will go to the editorial team who will take that, uh, that work and put it um, beside the Webster Bible. Now, that's probably, it's a technicality you may not need to know. The Webster Bible is the King James with some archaic words changed to American English from British English. So we feel like it gives us just a tiny step ahead. And then they will compare those two and they will essentially compile 
based on their observations into one reading. And then that will go back to the people who did the original work to see whether they agree with that sort of whatever the editorial team has done. And they will say, yeah, that reads very well. We like it. Or I'm not sure you got the point here where I translated this this way. And the Webster Bible says that. Then once that is complete, then we'll go out to our first what we call review one and in every level, we have you know someone who's familiar with the Greek, someone who's familiar with English editing, someone who's familiar with English linguistics or whatever, um, to look at that and read it and compare it and say, reads well, we think it's accurate, we, we appreciate what's done here. So essentially, at every step of the process, uh, well, I shouldn't say it that way, in the early steps of the process, we are working directly from the traditional Greek text. But further, at each step of the process, we are comparing to the King James because to us, it's an accurate translation, it's a sound translation, it's a good translation. We like it, and so as much as possible, we want to retain that sort of flow, that sort of readability, that sort of formality, if you will, um, in style. So, yes. So, um, just a bit more clarity about updating I know in one discussion we had, there's a concern of how it undermines, like in our children, maybe particularly just the sense of the authenticity. This is the word of God. If it gets changed every 10 years, do you have have you do you have um, something that you kind of have? Uh, you expect this is going to be a 50 year before it needs to get update, or a hundred years, you know, a generation, or is something you want to, you know the ongoing after an original publishing. Uh, any thoughts about updating and, and, and how and when and how frequently? That's a good question. We feel like we're a good ways away from that answer, but I can give you uh, what we're thinking now. And that is, I, I think we would say we're not foolish enough to believe that after we've released the first printing, everyone will say, oh, you made no mistakes because we know how printing goes and there probably will be some mistakes. But we would hope that within a few years, uh, we would feel like we had corrected the mistakes and that it was solid. And we want to do two things. At the point in which we feel like the text is solid and it has a reputation for whatever that reputation is, we want to allow people to publish that Bible who want to publish that Bible. So there should never be a situation where someone says, we liked the, what we had, uh, but now something has changed, but we don't have permission to do anything about it. If you want to publish it, you can publish it. Okay. But number two, at, at some point there, which is probably hopefully within that, whatever it is, it might be 10-year range, we would say, now that's done. We're going to release control of that entirely. It's going completely into the public domain. There it is. That's our wish or hope. But since we're years away from a final decision, I don't know what to say. Yeah. Okay. Appreciate your attention. Appreciate your questions and your interest and... I hope I've answered some of your questions.
been a blessing to be here with you. That concludes my thoughts.